Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing for the second time, Eric Severson. Our first conversation with Eric was one of the most downloaded episodes to date. If you haven't checked that one out, I highly recommend it. During that first episode, we discussed some of the truly groundbreaking HR and people-focused initiatives that Eric and his team implemented during his time at the apparel giant, Gap. In this follow-up conversation, we dive deeper into some people issues, including transparency in the workplace, the candidate experience, and the realities of working with executive search firms. This episode is full of great insight for any business owner or people leader. Ladies and gentlemen, I share with you again, Eric Severson. Eric, it is a pleasure to have you. It, uh, time goes by, you know, it, it seems like ages since we talked. And then again, it feels like it's only been a few days. I, I can't thank you enough for joining me again when we spoke last time. There was just so much more that, uh, that I wanted to cover and, and we ran out of time. And uh, so I really appreciate you making time to uh, chat with me again and, and share more about uh, all of your rich experiences. So thank you. I've been looking forward to the opportunity, Brian. Thank you. Absolutely. So I, I really want to frame up our conversation today in a spirit uh, of transparency. And I want to use transparency as the theme. And I want to start by saying, I think there's a bit of a common misconception about transparency. And what I mean by that is I think far too often companies see it only as a tool to be used when owning up to a mistake or trying to fix something that they've done wrong. And frankly, I think the approach uh, when, when looked at that way is short-sighted and definitely not an effective way to build trust in customers, which could be, you know, of course, the people that the the company is serving, as well as the employees who could also be thought of as customers are going to be far more forgiving when mistakes do happen if the company has a history of being forthright with all of its interactions and not just on uh, when mistakes happen. So given sort of that framing and that misconception, um, I'd love to hear your take on transparency you spent for those of you uh, that did not tune into the last podcast that Eric and I did together. Eric spent uh, over a decade and a, and a half with The Gap and was part of some amazing initiatives, a lot of experiments, uh, many of them incredibly successful. And I think part of the DNA of The Gap, which is just rooted in Don and Doris Fisher's uh, founding of the organization, is that virtuous cycle of commerce and social responsibility. So I'm, I'm curious and a bit of a, a long winded frame up here, but you probably have a lot to share on this uh, concept of transparency and you experienced a lot. So um, maybe you can share just a little bit about uh, your time at the gap and how transparency really began to evolve during your tenure there. Sure. I think Gap is an interesting case study, Brian, of the effect that transparency and the call for transparency culturally has had on operating practices within corporations. And really, the story with Gap goes back 
into the 1990s when Gap was sourcing product internationally. And there were accusations of child labor in some of the factories that were not owned by Gap, but by Gap's vendors making Gap's product. As a result of that, the company put in place a very robust organization to monitor the practices, the labor practices and environmental practices inside factories. And today they're arguably the best in the retail industry. What that meant though for Gap way before many of its competitors is it had to confront the issue of transparency and openness about business practices in its operations, even those that it didn't directly control. And this is way before the, you know, the advent of cell phones and ubiquity of, uh, you know, the internet, et cetera. And it really did shift the way the company had to think about its own internal processes for the better. And I think helped prepare it for what was coming in the 2000s, which is with the advent of digital technology and the increase of globalization, the, uh, the advent of a world in which everyone could know anything they wanted to know anywhere, anytime. And I think, you know, that the idea of how corporations have traditionally been managed in the 20th century evolved from the industrial age. And it was very much about command and control of people, of information, of intellectual property, et cetera. And old habits die hard. Those, that way of managing people is institutionalized in work charts, compensation systems, in seating charts, every sort of structural element of a, of a company. And many people are just trained in, in how to manage people by controlling them and controlling information. What sort of happened very rapidly in the last 10 years is all of a sudden individuals no longer need to rely on managers inside companies to get information about working conditions, pay, operating practices, et cetera. It's uh, instantly accessible via the browser on your phone. So what's happening as I see it is it's causing a real revolution uh, and a real, a real challenge to the latent practices inside every sort of corporation as leaders are challenged to have to rethink how they manage people, manage their compensation, how they manage communication, et cetera. I think at Gap, this started for us in the early 2000s because the Gap workforce is uh, young and it's when millennials first began to enter the workforce in large numbers. And, you know, today, uh, about 80 plus percent of GAP's workforce is millennial or post-millennial. So much more rapidly than the average company, GAP had to adapt to millennials' expectations. And the way we observed it is that millennials were living their life in a world in school, at home, every aspect of their life where they had access to transparent information about just about everything. And they came into the workplace expecting the same. So Gap began to be challenged very early on on its communication practices, compensation practices, et cetera, to be transparent. And I think at the beginning, like every company, we weren't equipped, we weren't set up 
in that kind of a structure. We were set up for a world of confidentiality and privacy, et cetera. And I think the challenge today for employers is how to change their operating practices while still navigating a legal architecture and uh, a, an ethical architecture around things like private medical information, which employers are obligated to keep private, um, other sorts of private information about an employee's performance and other things that, while maybe not regulated uh, by statute, are ethical matters of propriety that you're not going to talk about people uh, to other people. So it's kind of managing this tension between keeping private those things that individuals deserve privacy about while making transparent those things, everything you can, so that uh, employees have confidence in management that they know that you're operating in good faith. You know, it's really interesting. In some ways, it feels like common sense, right? There should be this sort of duh moment that uh, sharing a particular employee's medical information, probably not something you want to share. But when it comes to information that's going to benefit everybody and help the organization serve its customers or its clients better, that would likely be a very important thing to share. One of the areas that I think uh, is still quite taboo in sharing, and there's a few examples, one in particular, uh, a company uh, that I'm sure many have heard of called Buffer, about a year or so ago, released all of its employees' salary information and makes it fully available to anybody that wants to check it out. What's your take on, like, where do you draw the line? Clearly, the medical stuff, to me, seems like a no-brainer. Hopefully, it does to most. But there's clearly a gray area that just feels still so undefined of, what information should be fully shared and what information shouldn't. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think that there are easy, hard and fast rules about what to share and what not to share. And the reason I say that is outside of what's required legislatively, you, you run into this tension between, say, for example, on the, the, the instance you just brought up, um, individual employee privacy, for example, it, what is an individual employee's expectation of, of privacy? There's statutory uh, privacy where you, where the law defines it, but there are many other gray areas where it's just a matter of like, propriety. Do you believe that people want their pay information published? You really need to delve into it around the, with, with respect to the culture of the company. Similarly, this brings up issues of competitiveness and proprietary information, intellectual property, and other things. So for example, if for many years, many companies can on uh, pay, on base pay, other aspects of total compensation. So right. it's going to cause you as a company to question, if you're going to be completely transparent about pay, that means that not only your employees, but your competitors are going to see what you're paying people. So the good part of that, in my view, is that at some point you get to a place where 
companies hopefully stop competing so much on pay and start competing more on more meaningful aspects of the employee experience like am I will I be developed there will my strengths be cultivated is it a culture where people are treated equally and where I can reach my full potential etc 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 are there good leaders there um, in the current environment though there are many companies that are competing on on pay and and have historically protected voraciously any access to what they pay employees lest their competitors find out so i think i think it's a really thorny issue and what it requires is leadership and organizations having intentional deep conversations about the implications of transparency the pros and the cons and taking steps towards it so for example on compensation before I would go and publish all of my employees individual pay information I probably start with things like being transparent on the salary ranges for positions for for example so if someone is a grade one engineer um, can I do I feel comfortable being transparent with my employees and others about the pay range for that job what would it take for me to get comfortable? Like for example, what it might take for you to get comfortable is for you to carefully review all of the employees in that pay grade and be comfortable that every person is paid what he or she is worth in the marketplace and that it is fair and consistent. So there are steps I think that you need to take before you just start publishing data you need to be comfortable articulating for example why one employee is paid differently than another based on her skills her her time her experience um, and her value in the marketplace how much of uh you know you touched on the millennial drive in particular the influence that the you know the younger workforce uh, was having at the gap and likely still is how much of this do you think is just now, and I think you've alluded to it, just this is a non-negotiable now. The millennial and post-millennial employee value proposition is one that um, transparency of the things that should be out in the open. And let's leave pay aside because I agree that is a pretty thorny one. But from a communication standpoint, from a company strategy standpoint, from a what does the company actually stand for, how it actually lives and breathes its values through the behaviors, um, when changes are coming, things like that. How much of that do you think is just it's non-negotiable now and for companies out there that are still clinging to a 20th century industrial revolution hangover model that, that they better wake up pretty soon because it's going to be too late if it's not already. Well, I'd say, Brian, that you can't put the genie, this genie back in the bottle. That, And I'll just give you an example of why. So now that with digital technology, access to data and analytics is ubiquitous, you have the emergence of companies like Glassdoor. And I'll just focus on Glassdoor for a moment because I think it has been a leader in the transparency revolution with respect to the workplace. And there are other competitors indeed, for example, that do similar work. But in the case of Glassdoor, probably no single player has had a bigger impact on the change 
within organizations towards creating more transparent talent processes. And that's because if you go to Glassdoor, what you'll find is that you can find out just about everything that you might want to know about what it's like to work at a company. It's what its culture is like, how its leaders lead, how it communicates with employees, how transparent it is, how much people are paid by job, what kind of interview questions they ask. So it really throws, there is a reason it's called Glassdoor, right? It, it, it's, it's attempting, it's in, in the world is to take an opaque door to all of the information inside a company that one might need to make a job decision and throw it wide open, make it glass transparent. And it, it not only has it created this level of transparency for individual job seekers, but it's also allowed employees within organizations to tell their story by posting their job reviews on the site. And also Glassdoor has begun to mine these several years of data at a macro level that is collected on jobs, on pay, on cultures to publish really meaningful data at a macro level about things like, like equal pay. So Glassdoor, for example, sponsored a forum last year with leaders in the equal pay movement, including from some companies like Gap that has been a leader in this area, as well as uh, Hillary Clinton, who has been involved in the equal pay movement for quite a long time to talk about its recently released study on equal pay based on the millions of data points that it's collected over the last few years about pay directly from employees. So I think there is no going back at this point. And what I've seen is employers really scrambling to try to respond to the feedback that they're getting via Glassdoor that's visible to everyone. You know, it was only a few years ago that the only one who saw employee reviews of a company via, say, employee engagement surveys or other types of surveying were company leaders. Usually the employees themselves often didn't see all of those results. Now with Glassdoor, the whole world can have a view into how your company's operating and it's very disruptive. I think one of the common, if I could call it, concerns uh, that I've heard, and, and not much, but it's the one that seems to come up most often, is that, well, Glassdoor for some companies has turned into um, as I'm a, an exiting employee, whether it was voluntary or involuntary, I'm going to use Glassdoor as my final stone's throw at the company. I'm curious what your take is on that. Um, have you found that to be, is it becoming just a spot where the disgruntled are lo you know, logging their final complaints before they move on to pursue their happiness somewhere else? Or uh, are you not seeing that as the case? Just curious. I'm sure that there are probably some instances of that. That said, I've spent a lot of time on Glassdoor, particularly in the last year. And I will say as a candidate myself for positions in the last uh, six months, one of the activities I always engage in with 
some rigor is thoroughly reviewing all of the Glassdoor reviews on a company's Glassdoor page and pulling out my own themes. I spent you know, 20 years reading employee survey results and have a really good sense of and reading through them of what's probably accurate and what isn't. And I actually think that as I read through Glassdoor results, I think most people, especially those of any kind of job experience, can sort of sense in reading through survey results um, what makes sense to them and what doesn't, what resonates, what is consistent and what isn't. Human beings have sort of a built-in ability to do that. And I think this has been the value, for example, to people of uh, ratings on, say, Yelp or on uh, Amazon. I think that most people from what I've read who use ratings to inform their buying decisions don't just look at the star ratings, they dig into the qualitative data and they use their whole brain to, to think about and feel where do I see resonance among the different stories I see here? Uh, which ones seem credible and which ones don't? And I certainly dismissed many negative reviews that I saw about certain companies because they, they, didn't, they weren't consistent with what else I was seeing and feeling on a site. Um, so I have to say my general point of view is it's a data point and I would never encourage anyone to make a decision about whether to join a company or not based solely on reviews on a site like Indeed or Glassdoor. But I do think it's an important data point, one that has not been available prior to today to job seekers. And what it's doing is leveling the playing field. And it gives you a place as a candidate, as it has done for me, to ask questions. And I've been very open in saying, look, I read your glass door reviews. Here's what I see as the costs. Um, and, and I've yet to find an instance where someone, where the employer didn't say, yes, you're right. Those are some of our weaknesses. So I think it gives you a way to ask questions about things that could be real concerns for you. Having been and still continue to be a very senior level leader in the people, talent, culture, and human resources space, would you advise all company leaders, regardless of whether or not they practice in the, in the people HR discipline, to visit Glassdoor and specifically their company page and get a sense of what current as well as former employees are saying about your organization so that you can use it as a essentially a real-time pulse of what what's actually happening? I would. It, to me, it would be analogous to saying in the consumer space, would, would you, as a company leader, would it be wise if you were a, a business who had a Yelp page to ignore the reviews on Yelp? I would say it's not. This is the Yelp for the, the employment space. And while people may have call outs about it, I think that ignoring it is something that you do as a leader at your own peril. And I think as a human being, it's probably difficult not to get defensive when you see criticism on a public site about your company. But this is, after spending a lot of time on the site, here's what I would say, based on knowing employees at many different companies, having had interaction with many different companies, 
in general, when there are, is a significant sample size, that's important, of reviews on a company on the site, I've generally found that the reviews pretty much represent what I know about those, about working at those companies. So I think it's a good, it gives you a good directional sense of the of the strengths and the weaknesses and as a leader it's a gold mine for you to figure out gosh maybe there's something that's a powerful perception that you don't believe to be true but if it's a powerful perception that affects whether people stay or leave your company or whether they want to join your company don't you want to do something about it yes. you want to get to the bottom of why people feel that way and how you can change that it's a great point a really great point you know, one of the things you mentioned uh, was the study or the macro level study around pay equality. And it's you know, quite timely given that, well, two, two things. Number one, uh, the Equal Pay Act of 1963 uh, under JFK's administration, I mean, it's, that was signed, that was 53 years ago. And here we are finally within the last uh, you know, couple of days, uh, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker signed what is without a doubt the mo most robust equal pay law in the country that, as I understand it, not only bans employers from asking for wage or salary info on all job applications, but is also requiring the employers in the state of Massachusetts to pay men and women the exact same for skillfully comparable work. Given this recent news, which I would imagine you are absolutely following, you know, given the work that you had done with your colleagues at The Gap and becoming the first major retailer in the world to release your statistical evidence that you guys were paying men and women equally in all of the geographies where you do business, how does this new law, like, how do you feel when you hear this? I think it's about time and that it is a the culmination of everything we've been talking about so far. I feel like there is a cultural movement that probably cannot be reversed towards greater transparency. And what I find always on virtually every topic is that there are a few forces more powerful than transparency to bring about positive change in action. And so uh, to me, it signifies after California has similar laws in New York that, that there is a movement afoot that is likely to pick up momentum in the near future on the state level to have similar laws. And once you get a critical mass of those, it, it, it's then for interstate employers, employees that operate players that operate in many different states, it just makes sense then for them to put the effort into ensuring that all of their employees everywhere are paid equally. And the upside of it, of course, is what a, what a beautiful thing to be able to say to your employees, we are paying everyone here equally regardless of gender or you could say race, apply the same thing to race, and we can prove it to you. I think that one of the things that I've discovered in employee surveys over the years is that when you survey employees, very few people will answer a survey question that asks them, do you believe that you're paid enough 
always less than 50% will say yes uh, to that to that question. But there's always also sort of a deep suspicion that people are not paid fairly. One of the ways to take that energy off the table is to prove it. I love it. I love it. I, I do. I have to point to uh, just some remarkable results that all of the work you had done at the Gap with your colleagues uh, has has yielded. And I just want to read off some statistics that I think really uh, just mark the huge progress uh, that these types of initiatives, uh, specifically relating to uh, pay equality. Uh, what kind of an impact it's having. So, and I found these, uh, I believe it was on a Gap uh, site, that uh, between the years of 2007 and 2015, uh, women representation at the VP level increased globe, uh, globally from 44 to about 50%. Uh, in the U.S., representation of women of color increased from 28 to 34.5%. The most senior level leadership roles, this is, I found really interesting, those who are reporting directly to the CEO, uh, women's representation went from 33% to 77%, and women of color comprised four out of those 10 women. And uh, also not notably between 2010 and 2015, uh, women's representation on GAP's board of directors increased from 10 to 36%. And these are some really impressive increases in a relatively short period of time. When you hear these, I mean, you were a part of this. Is this satisfying or is this, uh, I, I guess, what? Wh where does this land with you? Like, okay, good, but nowhere near enough. Like, are you proud? Are you not? Like, what, what, what do you feel when you hear this stuff? I mean, it, it, of course, it's gratifying and I'm incredibly proud of the organization for achieving real results and I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that we took an approach at GAP to the inclusion in general that was results driven and strengths driven and in other words we set real hard targets for ourselves and another thing that I think we did that it that important to achieving momentum and results around diversity and inclusion objectives is focus. And one of the things that we did a number of years ago is focus our efforts around being an employer of choice for women. So we had always had a majority of our employees in the workforce as women, but we wanted to make sure that we were the premier destination by being able to say categorically and to prove it with real data and statistics that at GAP there is no glass ceiling and there is equal pay. And that is what we ultimately were able to do and if the statistics you just read illustrate that there is no glass ceiling at GAP and the data we released in 2014 and again 2015 on equal pay similarly illustrates that there is no disparity between what men and women are paid to do the same job. And that is incredibly valuable and it's why GAP won the Catalyst Award uh, in 
2016 for the work over the last few years on its Women in Opportunity initiative is part of the success came from an incredible intense focus on taking something that was in part an area of strength and really focusing on how you can turn that into a towering strength, one so much that you move outside of the walls of the company. So on, on the issues of equal pay and similarly minimum wage, which is a gender issue since two thirds of minimum wage earners are women, as well as leadership representation of women, in other words, their ability to move up. Gap put an incredible amount of energy and continues to into leading outside of the company. So it did all of this inside the company to do the right thing and to differentiate itself in the talent marketplace from other companies. But as part of its social mission, what it also decided to do is become a corporate voice and leader in the community. So leading, for example, significant efforts on equal pay, sending its executives out to speak at equal payday rallies, um, having all of its employees in stores, 100,000 of them wear buttons saying every day is equal payday at Gap, ask me about it, um, and arming them to participate in social media discussions about equal pay, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, using its workforce and using its brand recognition to create positive social change in the community. And it did the same thing with minimum wage as well. Um, and if you go to the website, you will see blog after blog after blog, for example, on these issues um, and the company joining in public efforts to improve the status and equal opportunity for women in the workplace. Why don't you think more companies do this? Do they just not care? Do they not have the right leaders? What do you think if you had to put your finger on the root cause of why more businesses don't recognize or, or perhaps don't take advantage of the opportunity to use their brand and their business as a positive force for, let's just call it elevating humanity, however they may be able to do so? Why don't why is this not happening on a larger scale yet? Well, I think you could devote a whole show to that <laughs> the answer to that question. Probably. Maybe. The short answer to me is not a simple one. I don't think it's as simple as nobody cares. I'm sure there are some instances of that. I think part of it is that inertia is takes energy and effort to reverse. And the conventional wisdom and the traditional way of thinking about social policy uh, social activism and corporations is that corporations should focus on making money for shareholders and they should focus on being responsible in how they manage that organization, CSR, corporate social responsibility, but they should stay out of politics and they should stay out of taking a position on social issues. And certainly this was this was a challenge at Gap for many years. Gap was, anytime Gap took a position on a social issue, uh, it was protested. So when it came out, gosh, two decades ago in support of gay rights, for example, uh, it, big protests um, happened. 
its stores, its website. Similarly, around issues having to do with using the word holiday instead of Christmas to make sure they honored many different religions. So, you know, and it paid a price for some of this stuff. And I think, though, what's happened is that was always the conventional wisdom. What's happened is that millennials want companies participating in making the world better. And this isn't just my opinion. There are many studies showing it. There was one by MBO Partners last year that showed that twice as many millennials placed their faith in companies to have a positive impact on changing the world as on government, which is quite stunning when you think about it. It's very and stunning. there are many other studies who corroborate this, saying that millennials want companies to be actively involved, not only in not harming the world through its operations, but actually to use its brand and its operations to improve social issues in the world, whether it's issues of equality, uh, income inequality, or gender equality, or racial equality, or uh, the environment, et cetera. So what I think is that some companies have not yet figured out how to deal with this, um, number one. And number two, I think they have to get aligned between their boards, the leadership of the company, their investors, et cetera, that they're going to take these positions and these actions. But you see more and more of it, Brian, I think is I mean, just as an example, if you just look, for instance, at the shift in the last two years in how Walmart has approached these issues, for instance, um, it's come out to be a real leader and advocate for raising the minimum wage, for example. It's raised its own uh, for issues around medical benefits and other things. And I think that's due to its recognition that the demographics of the country are shifting. The millennials are the largest generation in U.S. history, followed by Gen Z, which is even bigger. And the values of those generations are different. So to me, it's a, it, it's a matter of survival, ultimately. And the smartest corporations will get on board with this sooner. And the ones that don't will lose market share and eventually be overtaken. Yeah, I uh, I happen to agree with you, and I think we're seeing a lot of that. It's it's interesting, and I don't want to get political with you, uh, but I think we're seeing a small uh, indicator, which hopefully will will you know it'll follow whatever course it takes. But you've got some pretty uh, some pretty committed politicians out there who are finally recognizing that they can't. Um, they can't continue to keep quiet and allow things to happen the way they're happening. And, and it, it feels as if that people's conscience is starting to take over uh, what might otherwise be silenced for the longer term, uh, you know, battles that are being fought uh, in this presidential election. So it's just, it is really interesting. And I, and I wonder too, if what we're seeing in this current political environment, which is, pretty messy. If that also is an indicator of that we're just as a society not going to accept people compromising their principles and their values um, to, to, to benefit uh, in a way that just just really, uh, I guess, just that compromises what they what they most believe in. Uh, it's, it's just really interesting. It's really interesting. 
Um, one of the things that uh, I think really fits nicely into this transparency theme as well is uh, related to your, you know, where you're at right now, your, your time as one of the appointees on the U.S. Commerce Department's National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, is coming to a close uh, in, in the near future. And uh, you said yourself, you've been uh, actively looking for that next great opportunity for you. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that, you know, as the former co-CHRO at The Gap, you probably worked with a lot of or a handful of executive search firms being the company hiring them to help you find talent, uh, likely at the senior level. Um, have you been working with any executive search firms on the candidate side? And if so, I, I, boy, I'd love to spend a few minutes just uh, hearing about your overall experience and, and what you've seen and felt so far on the candidate side. I have, and I can think of few that would be recognizable names that I haven't worked with at one point or another, and on several, I've worked with more than one uh, search. So uh, yeah, a lot of experience has been invaluable, I would say, as an HR and talent leader whose responsibilities have always included talent acquisition and talent attraction. I can't think of a more invaluable experience than to be on the candidate side of the table experiencing what it's like to be a candidate for a job. And it's been profoundly influenced how I think about talent acquisition in general. And in my next role, I think it will greatly influence where I spend my time and energy on the candidate experience. So if you, uh, as you think about um, the good experiences from perhaps the average ones, are there any particular data points that really stand out as um, how you would describe the difference between an executive search firm that's doing it well versus one that uh, is maybe losing ground because they're not innovating quickly enough or not uh, treating candidates in a way that's acceptable given this transparency conversation that we've been having. Yes, there are. And I would relate that those differences back to this earlier discussion about transparency, millennials, and the transformation of the talent space as a result of digital technology and the transparency that it's brought to the workplace. I think that few processes within a company as it relates to talent have been more impacted by the transparency revolution than talent attraction at every level, including executive search. And so personally, one of the observations I've had as a candidate on the other side of the, the table, I'm used to be on the side of the table where I'm the customer of the search firm. Now I'm a candidate, so I'm not the customer anymore. I'm in a different role. I'm part of the supply of talent. And what, there are two things I think that I've observed. I think one is that transparency as a general concept is an ex expectation that I as a candidate enter into 
a relationship with a search form firm looking for because as an as a citizen i'm used to all day long using my ipad or my iphone to find the answer to pretty much any question i want anytime i want i use linkedin constantly and have transparent visibility to information about all kinds of people and so I naturally, when I'm in a relationship with a search firm, I'm expecting that we're gonna have candid, transparent dialogue about my candidacy, where I stand as a candidate, vis-a-vis -vis other candidates, et cetera. That's, that's number one, and I'll come back and touch on my actual experience um, in a moment. Additionally, what I would say is that as someone who's been focused on millennials and their aspirations for years and share many of them myself, even though I'm not a millennial, the value of experience over transaction is so powerful in today's world that it's becoming the primary differentiator between companies in almost every industry, whether it's hospitality, or retail or manufacturing that increasingly we talked about this extensively at the gap that ultimately as you know, digital technology has enabled uh, people to acquire goods and services from just about anywhere anytime really quickly what's going to differentiate companies is the emotional experience that someone has say when they go into a store when they go into a hotel and it is all of the data shows what millennials are most seeking. There's tons of data illustrating that given the choice, millennials will spend more money on experiences, travel, et cetera, than they will on material things vis-a-vis -vis earlier generations. So to relate that to my experience, what I would say is as, as a candidate, I'm really looking to see where I'm having a really positive experience. And one of the things about search is that it is one of the uh, one of a handful of life experiences searching for a job that has incredible emotional power in one's life. So you know, buying a house, having a child, um, looking for a job, these are big ticket experiences that affect your life in big ways. So they have the interaction you have with a search leader, sort of like the interaction you might have with a real estate agent when you're buying a house, the biggest purchase you ever made in your life, is very emotional and it stays with you for a long time. So I think those, those search firms or for anyone who's inside a company, those search leaders who can figure out how to create a more human experience are the ones that are gonna win. And I'll just give you an example. So one of the search firms that I've worked with on three different job searches, so three different jobs I was interested in. Um, I worked with three different search consultants at this firm, and I didn't get either any of the three jobs, so I was not the final candidate for any of the three jobs. But if you were to ask me, at which search firm did I have the best experience, and at which search firm would I be most comfortable with partnering for another search, either for my own as a candidate or to bring into my company to do a search for me, it would be that firm. And that's ironic. You would think, oh, it's the firm that placed the candidate. 
that the candidate would rate as the strongest experience. And that is not true in my, in my case. But the reason is that that particular firm seems to have figured out a formula for how to cover its bases on communicating with candidates. So it kept me the most informed, which is a sign of respect. It's respectful of my feelings as a candidate as I'm on edge wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, will I be a candidate? Will I have to move to another place? It, it's really empathy ultimately is what it gets to. And I think there's been a lot written about the fact that empathy is becoming one of the most valuable commodities of the 21st century in business, the ability for a company to empathize with its customers and other partners and put itself in their place and figure out how to create an experience that really feels good and meets the needs of that partner. And I would say this search firm over the others really had thought deeply about how to do that. So even as it is not giving me the uh, news that a candidate usually wants to hear, I have an offer for you. I leave with amazingly powerful good feelings about these people doing things like following up weeks and months after the search is over to see how my search is going to, uh, in one case, the firm offered an opportunity to come speak at one of its uh, events for CHROs, which was really fun, uh, gave me other connections uh, and just showed its continued interest in me, relationship with me long term. So I think in the current world, what people are looking for, not only millennials, but especially millennials, is relationships that are going to transcend simply an existing job relationship. You know, this gets into, you know, millennia um, that, you know, increasingly people may or may not be an employee of an organization uh, to work for it, but they want to have a relationship with it. And that may go over many years or they work for the company, don't work for the company. But this is where things are moving. And I think the, the companies and in this case, the search firms that are able to capitalize on that are the ones that are going to have the most business. I wonder if it's just it's a question that is constantly on my mind is if a search professional is paid and is heavily incented by a commission structure to facilitate placements, uh, a transaction, if you will, at some point, is it even possible for the search professional to remain empathetic and continue to uh, keep the, the number of relationships that are likely initiated uh, as their career grows? I just I wonder if those two particular factors uh, compete with one another. You know, my my livelihood, my compensation is driven by my ability to make a placement. Um, what I'm hearing you say is, at least in your experience, the firms that you when you're undoubtedly going to be serving in a CHRO type role uh, in the very near future, you are remembering from the candidate side the experience you've had, uh, even as you put it, for the you know the firm that you didn't get the transaction from, so to speak, is the one that you've had the best experience. And I just wonder if those two things really uh, are at odds. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yes, I think you've tapped into another topic that has the potential, 
um, to be a whole other show. But I think um, what you're tapping into is uh, pay for performance as a concept and the increasing amount of evidence that challenges the conventional wisdom about paid for performance. I'm not saying that no paid for performance works. What I'm saying is there is substantial evidence that many of the paid for performance structures are not incentivizing the outcomes that companies want them to. And I'll just give you an example that when I was with Gap, we tried many times to implement a, an individual draw commission structure for sales associates and one of the brands. And each time, though intuitively you would think that would produce higher sales, each time we piloted it, it did not work. Those stores actually produced poorer results than the non-commissioned stores. Yet when we tried a commission structure that was team-based where the entire store would earn a bonus when the entire store beat its plan, those stores outperformed the stores that didn't have the bonus. So what it illustrates is that in the case of Gap in that instance, Gap stores require teamwork, everyone working together in order to make the store run effectively. And having an individual commission structure caused people to focus only on generating more sales for themselves and nobody wanted to fill in the fixtures, for example, which is one of the things that's required to drive higher sales because it would hurt their individual commission. Um, and this is just an example of where it's really important to be tied into some of the latest science about what actually motivates people to the outcomes you want. And there's a fantastic book that just came out called Prime to Perform. And it's all about total motivation, the science of total motivation, which has been around for a number of years, but has had recent breakthroughs and ties directly to this issue about how you, what kinds of decisions you want to make about compensation and other structures inside companies if you want people to collaborate, for example, or as you're, the example you're citing, if you want search partners to develop long-term relationships rather than transactions with people so that you can drive uh, higher long-term outcomes for the company and build long-term relationships. So I think, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's much more that needs to be studied there. So along those same lines, uh, and this is just a fascinating conversation to have given, you know, the, both sides of the table that you've been on and also given the fact that Y Scouts uh, is a search firm uh, in the executive search space, you know, one of the areas or one of the traditional uh, go-to-market strategies for search firms is to either orient themselves around a particular geography and really dominate a, ge a geographic area or to specialize in, call it an industry, uh, or a particular job function or a job discipline. And I've often wondered, if you end up specializing in one thing, do you begin to look at the world as a search professional in a way that reduces all of the variables to something far too simplistic than what it really is, meaning, if I am a search professional and I run a practice area 
I'll just in supply chain, for example, and I'm hired by a big fortune 500 company that needs a chief supply chain officer. Um, do I, as the search professional, do I immediately default to thinking, oh, they need a leader of supply chain. I have a Rolodex of supply chain leaders. I'm just going to go connect with one of them. They line up to the responsibilities of the job. I know the best supply chain leader, so I'm just going to go pick one. I, I wonder if that... Um, reducing the equation or the transaction to such a simple uh, dot connection is part of the problem. Uh, Have you felt through your experience um, anything resembling that in the, in the clearly not in the one firm where you've had the, the, the really good experiences that uh, are building long-term relationships, which by the way, for our audience is not why scouts, we are not working with Eric. So I want to get that disclaimer out there. But um, I'm, I'm wondering if um, you've sensed any a difference between the go-to-market strategy of the firm that you've had a great relationship with versus the ones that have maybe been average or, or just not as great as, as, the, as the aforementioned one. Uh, so here's, here are my thoughts on that. What I would say is I think you're pointing to a really important element of disruption at the moment within the talent attraction space that affects search firms, which is the as the need within companies for agility, rapid shifts, rapid change, rapid adaptability for utility player qualities uh, becomes uh, more urgent. What what is happening is experience within a function, functional experience, basic competencies at a technical level that are t- is becoming less important. So I think most of the systems and processes for within search and talent attraction for assessing candidate qualifications have been focused historically for decades disproportionately on experience. Uh, and I, my own experience has been that most leaders historically have, have based most of their decision on somebody's experience, where they've worked, what kind of company they've worked at, what their jobs have been, et cetera. Increasingly, success is coming from organizations where people are disrupting traditional ways of doing things, innovating more, et cetera. And uh, what companies are finding is to get innovative thinking, you often have to introduce people who have not habituated in their mind a, a way of getting results. And so as a consequence, the the value of capabilities that are not readily apparent from a resume or a list of job experiences is really critical. So one of the trends that I see happening that I think is valuable, but I do not generally see it translating yet inside most, most search firms into value for the customer is the ability to assess capabilities and qualities beyond the technical in leaders cross-functionally so that you could then present a slate of candidates for a job uh, 
that is not traditional where say if it's a chief marketing officer job you might not present all chief marketing officers because perhaps the client wants a leader who is a proven track record of innovation and perhaps of empathy and perhaps uh, emotional intelligence well it's possible that some of those those traits will be found in leaders who've never been a CMO, but they may have enough qualities, technical skills that they could pull it off. You're never gonna know that unless you're spending a fair amount of effort successfully assessing for traits and qualities of leadership that go beyond what jobs you had. So I see a lot of search firms building strong assessment practices. I saw one of, uh, announcement yesterday that one of the big firms just partnered with a big assessment practice. And I think this is great. I just don't yet see most of them having connected the dots yet uh, to the extent that they tr they typically present non-traditional candidates from outside of a function for a functional role. And increasingly, employers are asking for that. So I think you know a trend that's well-documented is CEOs asking for CHROs who come from backgrounds other than HR. Yep. Because they're looking for a disruption. Yep. Yep. And so I think what search firms are trying to do is scramble to figure out, well, how do I then figure out what the right match is? And a lot of this will come from capabilities and competencies that go beyond the technical HR capabilities and competencies. Because there are plenty of leaders who have built HR jobs from outside of HR who haven't. Uh, worked out, um, and they may be great leaders, but the, the competency and capability match just probably wasn't right. What about from a um, overall culture, values, purpose, mission alignment standpoint? As a candidate, have you sensed that the firms you've had the opportunity to work with are digging in deep as to? what type of an organization is really going to light you up in a way that will not only allow you to perform at your highest level, given your unique mix of strengths, but also something that's going to connect with your heart and soul, where you can go to bed every night and wake up every day with a fire in your belly that the work that's being done is something that is really, really important to you that you can give everything towards. Are you sensing that the firms out there are digging in deep with you or is it staying mostly surface level and focusing uh, and privileging still the technical capability? To be fair, I'm the one uh, typically pushing them on, on the issue, so I can't entirely answer whether they would have brought it up otherwise, but fit with an organization around mission, vision, and values is so important to me that it's usually the first subject I broach when I'm talking to a search professional. Yep. How prepared are they to answer at the level that, because it sounds like, at least when I'm sort of putting the puzzle together, is that given the amount of research and diligence you do on your own using the, the open web, using Glassdoor, leveraging your networks uh, to learn. Um, are, are you getting answers that satisfy your sense of curiosity and wanting to really understand? Um, or are you having to rely on your own research to really fill that out? 
good question. I would say I probably relied more heavily on my own research and so gone into the conversations uh, before I even talked to it. I don't want to waste anyone's time. So before I even talked to a search consultant, I've usually done some pretty decent research on the company to determine whether it's the kind of company where I'm going to make the best contribution based on where my values lie and what I'm focused on. And so for myself, for example, I know that I'm not going to be I'm probably not going to be happy and I'm probably not going to make the greatest contribution in an organization that's purely bottom line focused. It doesn't have a large social mission as well and doesn't see its operations as a virtuous cycle to make the world better while it's making money for shareholders. I'm probably not going to fit in that organization. So oftentimes I will you know, refer other people for those jobs if a search consultant reaches out to me. I think though what you're getting at is, is there a widespread real focus on the elements of cultural fit? I do think most search firms are trying to find people who are a good culture fit because they want them to work out. What I also think though is that the methods for assessing things like fit as well as soft skill capabilities that go beyond job experience are still not well institutionalized. So you get, you know, I think that there is a use of certain assessments here and there. I'm not sure if it's really comprehensively integrated into a system so that as a candidate you experience interview questions, assessment protocols, projects or work samples that are all integrated around as a system selecting a candidate who is most closely aligned with what the company's ultimate vision is and mission as well as strengths. Um, I've yet to experience, have that experience where, all, where it's firing on all cylinders. Interesting. The last question that I have around this, and I appreciate your candor and, and sharing you know, these experiences that you've been having, is um, one of the topics that um, I've always found interesting, and, and this uh, probably relates more to some of the larger firms out there that have been operating for many decades, is you know, as a result of their success, um, they've had relationships with lots of different companies and a pretty common practice is to have off-limits agreements. Um, so I'm wondering, when you were at Gap and you were working with firms, how often are off-limits agreements um, a, a, a concern of yours and potentially not having access to who the best folks might be because the firm has done work with those, those companies in the past where those candidates currently sit? Great question. I think that it's one of the ripest areas for disruption. So we were aware when I was at Gab that off-limits agreements would help, at least in theory, protect us from being poached by you know, search firms. So one strategy that many companies employed that we also employed was hiring sure that you do hire each of the large search firms that has a lot of business in your in your sector um, every year so that you would have one year off limits agreements. Now why I say it's ripe for disruption is that that creates a system with unintended consequences and I'll just give you an example. So as a candidate 
not as the um, partner employing a search firm, but as a candidate, I was in one of the search firm's offices and overheard behind me two search consultants, a sourcer and a, and a recruiter talking about candidate pool for a really important C-suite job. And as the sourcer went through all of the top candidates she had found for the position, one by one, she read off their names. And each time the recruiter said, nope, off limits, nope, off limits, nope, off limits, nope, off limits. And it hit me all at once that that client was gonna get a pool of candidates that excluded the very top candidates in the talent pool for that role because the search firm had done business with its competitors and had off-limits agreements with all of them, which impressed upon me the challenge this presents in this industry, which is probably many times when I was a customer of uh, a search, there were probably many times when the very best, most qualified candidates who would have been the best fit for our roles were not presented to us. And I think that this is an opportunity that many boutique search firms are taking advantage of today because they are what they're often doing is working only with a handful of competitors within a particular industry and that leaves all of the rest of the talent in the industry open to them. So I think it's a real challenge and I think it relates to this issue of transparency and um, you know, thinking about ecosystems like the talent ecosystem in different and new and disruptive ways. And, uh, you know, I look forward to that. I think that that's, that's a good thing, but you can see how it, it, it can disrupt the entire infrastructure of how whole sectors of the economy function. You know, and it and also... Yeah, and it, and it also, I think, brings back into the spotlight that notion that you touched on about um, presenting candidates who may not be in that exact role for a competitor and instead looking outside of maybe the traditional perfect resume fit for someone that has the leadership capability, someone that has the empathy skills, somebody that has... Uh, the alignment in mission and values and purpose with the organization, who's going to bring a fresh set of eyes to, you know, uh, problems that uh, likely can't be solved if you're bringing the same institutional mindset uh, that, that, you know, being in the same industry year after year after year can present. So I think that's uh, another potential solution as well. It's, it's uh, super interesting. Super interesting. Eric, it's uh Talking to you, I could go on for another hour. There's just so much more I think we could cover, and I want to be respectful of your time and uh, also obviously respect our audience's time. Um, I, I wish you the best. I know that uh, you've got some things on the horizon. I have no doubt that uh, things are going to tie up here for you in the relative near future and whoever, whatever company is lucky enough to have you leading their people, culture, and HR operations is uh, going to be in a really, really good spot. So I wish you nothing but the best and thank you for spending as much time with me as you have both on the previous podcast as well as on this one. You're, you're a wealth of information and it's, uh, it's really appreciated. 
Well, thank you, Brian. I'm a big fan of yours and of Y Scouts and the mission you're on. And I wish you all the best as well. Thank you so much. hope you enjoyed hearing our follow-up conversation with Eric. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this episode or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, I welcome it. Please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise we've got more great interviews lined up and on the way. Thanks again for listening.